Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspiring North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah, Artsville from Asheville. Welcome to the Artsville Podcast, where we celebrate American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville, North Carolina, and beyond. This is the podcast where you will learn how Asheville became Artsville. I'm Scott Power, a.k.a. Sourdough. I'm one of the producers of this podcast and the founder of Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. And I'm joined with my friends and colleagues, Louise Glickman and Daryl Slayton from Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville. Hey, guys, how's it going? Pretty good. Hope you're doing well. Things are going great here. Thanks. Well, Happy New Year. It's an exciting time. I'm glad we're through the season, the holiday madness. I know you are as well. And I'm so excited about today's episode because we're talking some real important history in terms of Asheville and the Vanderbilts and the Grovewood Village. And we've got just this incredible interview with Tom Anders today. Well, there is so much to unpack here that. It's hard to know where to begin, but Tom, being a consummate historian about the Vanderbilt family, Dr. Grove, who built the Grove Arcade, which is downtown in Asheville, and also other very important people that were part of their team of friends, were really instrumental in bringing people here to Asheville And Edith Vanderbilt and some of her wonderful friends, the Vances and the Pattons, I mean, wherever you walk or go, there's a history trail in downtown Asheville. And constantly these names packed, you know, everything around here is called Biltmore after the Biltmore State. But of course, that's the Vanderbilt family. Then there's Patton Avenue. Well, Tom is such an incredible resource for so much of this history, and we're so grateful to have him today. I mean, because he grew up in Asheville, he knows this history inside out, and he's so passionate about sharing these important stories with the folks that come to Grovewood and, and the museum there. And there's an incredible collection of cars there, too, as he'll tell us. Yes, they, they do have a little museum back there, which uh, it's a trip through Memory lane? Past with old old automobiles, yeah. Fantastic. Well, shall we get into this interview with Tom? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what's essential to know here is that Tom spoke not just about the gallery, but everything that's in what they're now calling Grovewood Village. So just to place that, there is wonderful art studios there. There is a history museum about Edith Vanderbilt and her gal pals and what they contributed to developing the area, particularly for the economics of women who needed economic support and textile. They did it through textiles. The car museum, which has some of the amazing automobiles I've ever seen, and Grovewood, and then Grovewood, the gallery which is just phenomenal, particularly crafts-oriented gallery. 
and then a restaurant. And it's all there right next to the Grove Park Inn. So it's its own creative community right there. So it's almost like one-stop shopping, right? You go there and there's just, everything is right there for you. I mean, all of the history, the museum, the hotel, the property. I mean, it's a, it is truly a destination unto itself. Yes. Fantastic. It is. Um, it's one of the things you come to Asheville, you want to go to the River Arts District, you want to go downtown, you want to go to Biltmore Village, and you want to go to Grovewood Village. And Biltmore State. And Biltmore State. So that's a five-dayer right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, these are the quintessential experiences for people coming to the area, right, to, to visit Asheville. And I remember going to the Vanderbilt Mansion, you know, years ago as a kid. You know, I think I was 10, so I was you know, 40 years ago. And then I was there, you know, a few months ago visiting again, and it hasn't changed much. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a good thing, right? Because they have preserved this property. It is fantastic. And Tom is just so generous with his time and his expertise. What do you guys think? Shall we get into this interview with Tom? Let's do it. Yes, absolutely. All right, guys, here we go with Tom Anders from the Grovewood Galleries and Industries. Tom Anders, welcome to the Artsville podcast. Scott, thanks for having me. I'm so thrilled to have you today, Tom. This is, we've got so much history to cover, so much exciting stuff to talk about in terms of Grovewood and its link to Asheville and the amazing history that we are here to talk about and celebrate. But Tom, first, I want to start with this question we're, we're trying to ask all of our guests. In your own words, how did Asheville become Artsville? Well, uh, I would say you'd have to go back to the era just at the turn of the century when George Vanderbilt finished the Biltmore Estate, 1896. And of course, George Vanderbilt had traveled all over the world and he did a lot of collecting. He was somebody who certainly appreciated the arts and, and the Vanderbilts were known for being tremendous art collectors. And George Vanderbilt had spent a good deal of his young adulthood traveling around the world with his mother. And she loved Asheville because this is a place that made her feel better as she had malaria. And a lot of patients found that when they got to Asheville, the altitude and the good clean air and the nice surroundings made them feel better. But I would attribute a lot of the beginning of the arts movement in Asheville to George and Edith Vanderbilt's becoming regular citizens of the town and being involved with the local community in a very big way. Well, Tom, for those listeners who may not be familiar with George and Edith Vanderbilt, let's start there. Tell us, who was George Vanderbilt? George Vanderbilt was the grandson of Cornelius Vanderbilt. Cornelius Vanderbilt was the famous Commodore who was the fellow who came over from Holland. The Vanderbilts were Dutch. And George Vanderbilt supposedly borrowed about $100 from his mother and started a little ferry business in New York Harbor with ferry ferries and steamships. And later that led to the creation of the New York and Central Railroad, which in one point made Cornelius Vanderbilt one of the richest men in the world. And the Vanderbilts had a lot of children, I think about eight or nine children. 
And George Vanderbilt was the grandson of Cornelius Vanderbilt. And Cornelius Vanderbilt died and left tons and tons of money for many, many heirs. And that money got spread out in a lot of different directions. And George Vanderbilt was actually the eighth of nine children in his family. And so he got somewhat less inheritance than some of his older siblings may have gotten. But he spent most of his time when he was in his 20s and 30s traveling around the world with his mother. And he was kind of a very well-educated, sort of a nerdy kid who loved to read and he loved to collect things. And if you have unlimited funds, you can collect a lot of things. If you're traveling on little junkets around the world and your only chaperone is your mother. (laughs) So by the time he decided to build the Biltmore House in Asheville, he had, of course, an extensive collection of arts from all around the world. And as I said, one of the reasons that he came to Asheville is that his mother felt a lot better when she got into the mountains and that that little bit of altitude and that nice clean mountain air is somewhat intoxicating for lots of people. And it always has been. And I tell people all the time, the same reason that George Vanderbilt moved here and E.W. Grove moved here are still the same reasons that people are moving to Asheville today. Although, thankfully, malaria is not as great of a risk today as it once was, right? That's true. Tom, my goodness, you clearly know your stuff, my friend. So what is exactly your role there at Grovewood? Are you the historian? I am the sort of curator and manager and local historian. I run an antique car museum. And then I also run what's called the North Carolina Homespun Museum. And the Homespun Museum is where we actually do our historical tours. We talk first about Edith and George Vanderbilt and how Edith Vanderbilt and two other ladies, Eleanor Vance and Charlotte Yale, started what was basically a a boys club with woodworking as the focus. Ms. Vance was a very talented woodworker and carver who had studied in England, and Eleanor Vance and Charlotte Yale were missionaries who came to All Souls Episcopal Church, which was finished about the same time as the Biltmore House by George Vanderbilt. And these two ladies were missionaries who had come from the Moody Bible College in Chicago and came to Asheville, and the reverend or the rector of the church, Reverend Swope, had charged these two ladies with trying to do something to get all these kids, mostly young boys, between the ages of about 12 and 17, off the streets of Biltmore because all of their parents were busting their hineys working at the Biltmore house. And you had all these young boys kind of running amok in Biltmore Village. And the the rector says, well, maybe we can teach these boys some, some basic skills that will be useful. And they got a group of about 20 boys together at All Souls Church And Eleanor Vance started teaching them how to do a very simple dogwood carving where they would take a small block of wood and they would carve these beautiful dogwood flowers into those pieces of wood. And that led to Edith Vanderbilt becoming interested. And after she had married George in 1898, she approached these two ladies in about 1901 and said, ladies, I'd like to help you 
but we got to get the girls involved, right? Edith Vanderbilt was a very progressive woman, and she knew that we got to get the girls involved too. It can't be just for boys. So that's when the two ladies, Eleanor Vance and Charlotte Yale, were sent on a trip by Edith Vanderbilt to Scotland to study weaving. Edith, of course, had been all over the world even before she married George, and she wanted to have some of the fine Scottish and English and Irish type tweeds that she had seen and would be used to wearing. And she knew that there were ladies out on the Biltmore estate who had their own spinning wheels and could spin raw wool and turn it into yarn and make things out of it. And she wanted to not only, you know, have some fine tweeds, she knew that the estate was full of these women who needed something to do where they could make a little income. And it really was sort of born out of the fact that she knew she had these two talented women who were interested in helping. And that combination of woodworking and weaving would be a good combination. So that's how they got involved with the textile part of the operation. And Tom, was that the genesis of Biltmore Industries? It was, yes. The original company that was founded in 1905 by Edith Vanderbilt, Eleanor Vance, and Charlotte Yale was called Biltmore Estate Industries. And they went along very well doing small pieces of furniture. Everything was made by hand. They made fabric. Eleanor Vance and Charlotte Yale, when they returned from their trip to Scotland, came back with a wooden loom. And that wooden loom was copied by the boys of the industries because by that point, several years after they'd started from making little dogwood pieces to making small pieces of furniture. They made bookcases and wooden bowls and small pieces of furniture. And the boys, they looked at that loom that the two ladies brought back from Scotland. And it's basically made completely out of wood with pegs and some small leather straps and a few things. And they said, well, we're getting pretty good at this. We could probably make a few of those. So they just basically copied the loom that was brought from Scotland and they made about seven more looms. So they had a total of eight looms working in Biltmore Village in space that was provided by Edith Vanderbilt. And it wasn't very long after the industries continued on that people would get off the train in Biltmore Village and they would come into the shop at number eight Plaza Street right there in the middle of Biltmore Village and they would buy picture frames and wooden bowls and little bookcases. And before long, the fabric, the woolen fabric that they were producing became a more important part of their operation. It was bringing in more income because the wooden pieces had to be made very carefully by hand. It was very slow, tedious process. But once they got eight looms going, they could make a pretty good bit of woolen fabric and people would buy a few yards of it and take it home and make a jacket or a suit. And they'd say, wow, that Biltmore Homespun is some really nice fabric. And of course, you know, Edith Vanderbilt was not going to be represented by any fabric that was less than really nice because, you know, she was Edith Vanderbilt, right? (laughs) So the textile business became a little more important part of the operation And then George Vanderbilt died quite suddenly in 1914. And by that point, Edith Vanderbilt had a 14-year-old daughter, Cornelia, who was born in 1900. And the big thing that she was faced with when Mr. Vanderbilt passed away 
is that the Internal Revenue Service had just been formed in 1913 and World War I was about to start. And here she's got a 250-room house on 125,000 acres of property, and she's got over 800 employees on the payroll, right? And she's being told by her bankers and her lawyers and her advisors, ma'am, you're a very wealthy woman, but your husband has spent an incredible amount of money building this house, acquiring 125,000 acres, and paying 800 employees Even Vanderbilts can run out of money and you need to try to downsize this whole operation, this whole situation. And she very, very deftly makes a great deal with the Internal Revenue Service and the U.S. Forest Service and sold for about $5 an acre, 87,000 acres of property back to the Forest Service for what we know as the Pisgah National Forest. So when you look at the Biltmore House and you look out toward Mount Pisgah, it's about 6,000 feet off in the distance. That was basically George Vanderbilt's yard, and she sold it back to the Internal Revenue Service and the Forest Service. And that gave her enough working capital to continue on with life at Biltmore. And of course, Cornelia had two sons, George and Bill Cecil. Cornelia married a gentleman named John Cecil from England. And the two Cecil brothers are the ones really that should deserve the credit for turning the Biltmore House into this fabulous place that it is today. So take us back to the genesis of Grovewood, the village. Uh, So, you know, in the early days, what was the village? What was there? What were the structures? Who was working there, living there? Take us back to the beginning, please. Yes. When Edith Vanderbilt was making deals with everybody that she could to try to simplify her life and downsize the Biltmore estate. She was, after George Vanderbilt died, was close friends with Fred Seeley, who was the son-in-law of E.W. Grove, who had built the Grove Park Inn. And as you and I were speaking before the podcast, the Grove Park Inn was built with a pharmaceutical fortune of Edwin Wiley Grove. And he had a product called Grove's Tasteless Chill Tonic, which was basically a preventative medicine for malaria. And it was basically quinine in a bottle in liquid form with sugar and alcohol and lemon flavoring added to disguise the taste. And you take two or three tablespoons a day as a preventative measure to keep the malarial parasite out of your body. And it worked very effectively, not only for patients that had malaria, but for patients who did not want to contract malaria. You'd use it as a preventative medicine. And Fred Seeley was an inventor and a chemist who had married Grove's oldest daughter, Evelyn. And he was able to help Grove make a fortune by taking the glass bottle and the liquid out of the equation and producing dry malaria pills that could be shipped all over the world. And in 1912, he and Dr. Fred Seeley and Dr. Grove decided that they would build this hotel in Asheville because Grove himself, who had chronic emphysema, he had chronic hiccups and several other physical problems, and he would come from his home in Paris, Tennessee to Asheville 
After George Vanderbilt built the Biltmore House, Asheville started attracting the attention of a lot of people who would say, well, why did George build that big house there? And they would come to Asheville and they would fall in love with the mountains. And the same thing happened with Grove. He started coming in the late 1800s, about the time the Biltmore House was finished. And he fell in love with Asheville and he started buying property. And he bought up a total of around 1,200 acres of very valuable property in North Asheville from the base of Sunset Mountain over top of the mountain. So with Fred Seeley's help, his son-in-law, they decided in 1912, because they had amassed this huge pharmaceutical fortune, to build this hotel. They were being encouraged by the city fathers and the leaders in the city to build a hotel in North Asheville. And Grove said, well, we're going to put Fred Seeley in charge of everything because Seeley had studied architecture for a brief time at Princeton. And Fred Seeley is the guy who made the deal with Edith Vanderbilt in 1917 to bring all of her weaving and woodworking operation to the Grove Park Inn. So the Grove Park Inn opens its doors in 1913. And in the early days, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Harvey Firestone, all the VIP types that were moving their way up and down the East Coast would stop at the Grove Park Inn because they were also curious. What is it about Asheville that makes George Vanderbilt want to live there, that makes Grove want to build this luxury hotel there? And like a lot of people still do today, they come to Asheville, they fall in love, and they want to live here, right? So that really hasn't changed. And Fred Seeley was a very smart man, as I said before, and he and Edith Vanderbilt were good friends, and they would, they knew each other socially. And in 1917, which would be three years after George Vanderbilt died, Mr. Seeley and Edith Vanderbilt made a deal, and he paid her $10,000 to buy the business of Biltmore Estate Industries, and he assured her that he would build proper accommodations for all of those artists and those weavers to have facilities to work beside the Grove Park Inn. And of course, Seeley knew when the hotel was new there in the late teens and early 20s that he had a hotel full of wealthy Americans who would be more than happy to buy some fabric called Biltmore Homespun because after all, if it's good enough for Edie Vanderbilt, maybe we should have some, right? So he built, starting in 1917, a group of six English-style cottages on the property that we now call Grovewood Village, and they dropped the name Estate and just called it Biltmore Industries. But locally, it was sort of known as the homespun shops because after they came to Grove Park, the textile business became a much more important part of the business than the woodworking business. Eleanor Vance and Charlotte Yale, the two ladies who had started the woodworking business, decided in 1915 that they would continue their woodworking business in Tryon, North Carolina, and they moved down the mountain to Tryon and started the Tryon Toymakers, which is still in business today. But Fred Seeley knew that that textile business was going to be his bread and butter. And he he had sort of a contentious relationship with his father-in-law, E.W. Grove. 
and he knew that he might not always be the manager of the Grove Park Inn, and this Biltmore Industries was his kind of plan B. So that he could manage the hotel and still watch the Biltmore Industries because it was right next door, and he could sell fabric to all those wealthy Americans who were the regular guests at his hotel, and that name Biltmore Industries became synonymous with high style and quality fabric that was being produced there on site. So then at its peak, Biltmore Industries, the fabrics, talk about its decline a little bit. After the peak, how did it begin to decline? What was happening then? Yeah, the heyday for the business of making woolen fabric at Biltmore Industries would have been around 1929, 1930, just before the depression and the stock market crash Asheville would have been a real party town. I mean, all the beautiful arts and crafts or the art deco buildings that were designed by Douglas Ellington and other famous architects in Asheville were done there around 1927, 28, 29. Asheville would have been becoming extremely popular among traveling elite tourists in the Southeast. They would come stay at the Grove, Grove Park Inn. And Dr. Grove had also acquired land in downtown Asheville and built what is now known as the Grove Arcade Building, which is a beautiful Art Deco building. And the original plan for that building was it it was going to be like an Eiffel Tower where they were going to build this large tower structure on top. But Grove died in 1927 and that never came to fruition. But the heyday for Biltmore Industries and the, the fabric making would have been about 1929 and 1930. But after the stock market crashed and the Great Depression hit, they completely stopped doing any woodworking or furniture making. And the, the business of textiles started to decline fairly quickly after that. So by the late 30s and early 40s, that business is starting to struggle because the textile business was changing very quickly And at Biltmore Industries, you were doing completely hand weaving. So these guys are individual men working at individual looms, doing a pair of pedals up and down with their feet and jerking on a rope to make the shuttle go left and right. Well, by the early 40s, the textile business had changed dramatically and that way of weaving had become totally obsolete. Fred Seeley died in 1942 And it's about that point that the business started to really decline because he was sort of the leader of the Grove Park Inn. The Grove Park Inn was going through a lot of changes. It changed hands several times after Grove died and then Seeley died, and it was becoming kind of run down. And Fred Seeley Jr., who was Fred Seeley's oldest son, had basically inherited this property from his father, and he didn't know a damn thing about the textile business. He was just a novice who was like, oh, I've inherited this property, but I don't know what to do with this. What am I going to do? And so in the early 50s, that business was really struggling. There was word that, you know, it was going to completely shut down. They only had a handful of employees. And Fred Seeley Jr. was there one day with his lawyer in early 1953, and he was approached by Mr. Harry Blomberg. And Mr. Blomberg was the gentleman who was the Cadillac, local Cadillac and Pontiac dealer. 
Harry Blomberg, by the 1950s, was doing quite well because he was one of the very first Cadillac dealers in North Carolina and had, having started in the 1920s, had struggled through the 20s and 30s and through the Depression. But as we were speaking earlier, the automobile business gets really, really good about the early 1950s when you think about after World War II. Of course, we had been at war with the Germans and the Japanese, and there were no BMWs, and there were no Mercedes, and there were no Lexus, and Cadillac would have been the real standard in the luxury car business. So by the early 1950s, Harry Blomberg was flush with cash. He comes up to Biltmore Industries one day because he heard that they were trying to sell a lot of the items there and maybe sell the entire property, and he was curious. And he's talking to Fred Seeley Jr. and their lawyer. And he says, really, I just came to buy a table. He said, I know that you guys have these long tables that you cut fabric on, and they're called cutting tables. And they have a market every every three feet. So three feet, six feet, nine feet, 12 feet. They've got a little mark. And they use these tables to cut fabric on. And Harry said, I'd like to buy one of those tables And oh, by the way, there's an old moonshine still over here in one of these buildings. How much would you take for that moonshine still? I'd kind of like to have that at my Cadillac dealership for just a conversation piece. And Fred Seeley Jr. comes up with this story, and it's really, it was true. He says, well, he said, that moonshine still, Mr. Blomberg, has got to stay with the property. My father, Fred Seeley Sr., was a deputized sheriff. And he went out with some deputies on a moonshine raid over in Waynesville one night, and they came back with this still, and they chopped it up, and they made it where you couldn't use it. But he says legally it belongs to the federal government, and it has to stay with this property. And the only way I could sell you that still is if maybe you'd be interested in buying this whole place, and we're trying to sell everything. And that would include these six buildings and about 20 acres of property. So Harry Blumberg, by that point, you know, he says, well, I really just came to buy that table. I've got a little lake house down at Lake Lure, and I wanted a good-sized table for my family and my card games or whatever. But, uh, you know, I think we could talk a little about it. So as the story goes, Harry Blumberg and Fred Seeley Jr. made a deal in about 20 minutes, and Harry Blumberg became the owner of Biltmore Industries, and in 1953... He paid $55,000 for those six buildings and 20 acres. Now, as we talked about before, that was a good bit of money. It was the equivalent of about a million and a half dollars, which was a good bit of money, even if you were selling a lot of Cadillacs. That's a lot of money in 1953. But Harry, he was an entrepreneur. And he knew that that property right next to that old hotel would be a good investment. And over the years, he made it work because... They kept weaving for just a short time, and they went from 40 looms down to four looms. And he would lease other parts of the property out to people who were doing sweaters or electric blankets. I had a conversation not long ago with a lady who said she spent most of the early 1950s and early 1960s running little wires through electric blankets. So Harry was a guy who could make it work, and he... When he started making a lot of money in the car business, instead of expanding and buying more car dealerships or expanding the car dealership, he basically spent his time going around Western North Carolina, buying up pieces of property that he thought were valuable. And that's paid off very handsomely for his heirs, who are close friends of mine.
Wow. What a, an amazing time in American history. Yes. Mr. Seeley was really the important figure in, in this whole story because he was able to know that he could turn Edith Vanderbilt's little cottage industry into something very special. And he not only produced fabric for the guests of the Grove Park Inn, which would have been, you know, all these famous people who are having their clothing custom made, but he produced fabric at a cost that was was attractive for buyers all over the country to order fabric by the yard at a time when even middle-class people would maybe be making their clothing by hand at home. Biltmore homespun fabric would be available at a price point that was affordable for people to order fabric by the yard. So at one point in the late 20s, early 30s, Biltmore homespun and Biltmore Industries was one of the largest hand weaving operations in the country. And Fred Seeley was also instrumental in bringing a number of other textile operations to the United States, and one of which was called the American Enka, E-N-K-A, was a Dutch producer of rayon. And they set up a huge plant in West Asheville, Western Buncombe County, called American Enka. And Fred Seeley was really one of the people who was in charge of bringing that operation to Western North Carolina. And it's at that point, probably in the 40s, early 40s, into the 50s, when a lot of other textile manufacturers started showing up, doing finishing and dyeing and sewing and that sort of thing. And the textile industry really started to thrive from about the 40s and 50s until the 70s, probably the 70s and 80s. It's when all those jobs started being shipped away and, and leaving you know, North Carolina and the Southeast in general. Right, because in recent times, North Carolina has become famous, right, for its furniture business and its yes. textiles, and, and, and it's all rooted in the history that you're sharing with us today. It is. It really is. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So I want to go back to Harry, because Harry was obviously a successful entrepreneur in the car business, and as I understand it, Tom... You have like one of the coolest jobs, I just want to say. <laughs> and as a historian sharing this history with us, one of the interesting things that you have there at the Grovewood Village is this automotive museum, this collection of cars that I believe was Harry Bloomberg's collection, no? Yes. Mr. Blomberg was born in Asheville in 1904. And so as you think about the history of the automobile... Mr. Blomberg was a 10-year-old boy when the Model T would have been on the road. So he was one of those kids who was like a little grease monkey. First, he started working on bicycles, then he started working on little motorbikes. And then when cars came along, I think he was one of those people who saw or just sort of felt intuitively that the automobile was going to be the next big thing, and he wanted to be a part of it. And he and a couple of other young men, a guy named Clarence Sluter, had a little garage in downtown Asheville right behind Julia Wolfe's home. Julia Wolfe was the mother of Thomas Wolfe, the famous author of Look Homeward Angel. And Mr. Blomberg also bought a little building back there and had a little storage garage. So in the early days, if you were a person in Asheville who had a car, which would basically be only the wealthier people, 
you more than likely did not have a garage because nobody had thought about having a car because you nobody, you know, everybody had a horse. And when cars started coming along, nobody had a garage. So cars were open air. They didn't have windows. Model T was just an open air car. And if you had a car, chances are you needed a place to put it. So Harry not only had a little garage, a little gas station, and a little storage building in off Haywood Street in downtown Asheville. So he was the guy who people in downtown Asheville would look to, hey, Harry, I need some tires for my car. Hey, Harry, you know, my car needs an oil change. My, I need to get my car in out of the weather for the winter. Can you put it in your little storage garage? So, you know, from an early age, this guy was an entrepreneur. His father and his uncle had come here from Lithuania. They were Jewish immigrants that had come through Ellis Island. And Louis Blomberg, Harry's father, and Aaron Blomberg were prolific businessmen in Asheville. They owned a number of businesses in downtown Asheville, a sporting goods store, a movie theater, a cigar store, Army-Navy sort of surplus store. These guys were movers in the business community, and they had really started out as peddlers after coming from Lithuania. They, they They started in Savannah and then made their way to Asheville, and the Blombergs have been a fixture in the Asheville business community for long before Harry was even born. And Harry's father, Louis Blomberg, was really frustrated that Harry didn't want to go into any of the family businesses. He didn't have any interest in in the sporting goods store or the movie theater. All he wanted to do was mess around with cars. Louis Blomberg told his son, and we have this documented on some of the stuff that we have, you'll never amount to anything. You have wheels in your head, right? And his high school principal at Asheville High School told him, you might as well drop out of school because you don't have any interest in doing anything but messing around with those cars. And so he did. He dropped out of school at age 16. And he had his little storage garage and he had his little car business working on people's cars. And so Harry Blomberg was the kind of person that General Motors would look for when they would be out in any town USA. And, you know, as General Motors started to grow and the importance of the automobile started to grow in America, say in the 1920s, General Motors executives from Detroit, they would be going all over the United States saying, okay, we need a dealer in this area or we need a dealer in this town. And, oh, by the way, This guy looks like he already knows something about cars. So Harry Blomberg was the kind of person that they would seek out when they would go to places like Asheville and say, "Okay, we need a Cadillac or a Pontiac dealer. Mr. Blomberg, what do you think about maybe going to work for General Motors? You could maybe be the next Cadillac or Pontiac dealer. And if you were a guy like Harry who had been working his hiney off, you know, fixing other people's cars, you'd say, all right, let's go. When do we start? You know, if you're going to help me finance this deal, I'm all in. So that's how Harry Blomberg really got started in the automobile business. He was awarded one of the very first Cadillac franchise dealerships in the mid-20s, about 1926, 27. And that dealership is coming on well, 93, 94 years as being owned by the same family here in Asheville. And so Harry was not only a Cadillac dealer, he was a distributor for Cadillac, meaning that he was one of the guys, 
in the catbird seat, so to speak, that would say, okay, you get this many cars and you get that many cars and old Harry gets the really, really good cars you, you can make the most profit on, right? So those were very powerful positions in the early days of the automobile. You know, being a dealer was one thing, but being a distributor for General Motors was a whole nother different ball of wax. And you could make a lot of extra money by being a distributor. And so this fueled his ability to collect cars. Yes, absolutely. Now, I have a collection of cars at the the Antique Car Museum, which was formerly the weaving shop for Biltmore Industries. It's in an old textile building that's just three football fields long, and it used to have looms lined up on either side, about 40 looms, 20 on one side, 20 on the other side. And now I have a collection of automobiles that were collected by Harry Blomberg and a collection of horse-drawn carriages going back to Dr. Grove. Our oldest car is a 1913 Model T, which is on display in the lobby of the Grove Park Inn because that's the year that the Grove Park Inn opened. So that would be representative of the kind of automobile that would be in the parking lot of the hotel when it was brand new. And Henry Ford was a guest there. And our newest car is a 1959 Edsel. So I have cars between 1913 and 1959 that were basically cars that were representative of Harry Blomberg's life. You know, if you're a car dealer and you got cars coming and going in different directions all the time, every every once in a while you'll say, this was kind of cool, I think I'll keep it. And of course, if you've got a few big buildings to keep them in, you say, okay, well, I've got a place to keep them. And in 1966, he decided to move his dealership from its original location in downtown Asheville to its current location in West Asheville, where it's called Harry's on the Hill. It occupies a big portion of Patton Avenue in West Asheville. That is the year that he decided to take all the looms out of the the weaving building and put his cars in there. So I have a total of 19 cars and three horse-drawn carriages that were collected by Mr. Blomberg from the 20s until uh, he died in the 90s. But I think his collecting days were pretty much over by about the 70s and 80s. So what's your best guess for the market value of this collection? I mean, it must be priceless. It's very valuable. You know, cars of that era are not as valuable as you might think in today's world. People want the muscle cars from the 60s and 50s, 60s and 70s that are the most popular. But we do have some very valuable items. I have a really extremely rare Cadillac Eldorado brome that was made in 1957 with a stainless steel roof and silk seat covers and suicide doors. And I have several unusual cars. Some I have an Overland and a Packard and a Rio. And we have some also other collectible items. We have three enormous chandeliers that hang in the car museum that used to belong to Fred Seeley. And they get a lot of attention as well. In the arts and crafts world, anything that is made by a company called Roycroft out of New York in the teens and 20s is highly collectible. And after they finished the hotel in 1913, Fred Seeley built himself a little English-style castle on top of Sunset Mountain called Overlook, and we commonly refer to it as Seeley's Castle. 
But I have three chandeliers that were made by Roycroft that used to hang in Seeley's Castle. And they are probably the most valuable things other than the blue El Dorado. And in total, there's probably two or three million dollars worth of stuff in there. But it's not something we really think about. We just try not to burn the place down. <laughs> yeah, let's not do that, Tom. There, <laughs> you yeah, might get a fired lot, if that happens. <laughs> there's a lot of wood in there. We don't have a sprinkler system because it's basically it's kind of a glorified barn. So it's an old building built in 1922, and we we do our best not to burn it down. But uh, yeah, there's probably <laughs> there's probably two or three million dollars worth of stuff there. But sure. a lot of what I do is try to. I give people a little historical perspective about, you know, what went on with Edith Vanderbilt and Fred Seeley and Mr. Blomberg and try to put it in a little nutshell and give them a little historical perspective. And people are really surprised when they look at some of the photos and they see, oh, this was a big textile operation. And now it's this really cool car museum. And whether you're interested in in the history of Asheville or the history of the arts and crafts movement in Asheville or the history of the Grove Park Inn or just interested in old cars, we've got a little something for everybody. Well, Tom, this conversation is so enlightening. I'm so grateful. And we've done, you know, we've spent the last few minutes talking about the automotive museum aspect, which is obviously current day. I mean, people can go there now and meet you and see the cars and learn all this great history. But let's talk a little bit more about what exactly is happening in Grovewood Village today. The artists that are working there, the galleries that, you know, take us through current day. Yes, we have a group of very talented artists that have their studios at Grovewood Village, a total of about 10 artists. I don't know all of their names, but we do have some very talented people. We have a fellow named Chris Abel, who is a flute maker, and he makes flutes out of a very rare African blackwood called Grenadalia. It's like an ebony, and he has been occupying a studio there at Grovewood for almost 30 years. So it's the kind of place where talented people come and they very rarely leave. We have people doing glass. We have people doing furniture, jewelry, pottery, ceramics, and so on. And at Grovewood Gallery itself, we have floor space of about 8,000 square feet where we represent somewhere between three and 400 of these very talented people. And most of those people are local and regional artists that we discover in one way or another. And we work with those artists to try to sell their work and promote them as best we can in a retail environment that's got a lot of historical charm. We sell a lot of wind sculptures that are spinning around outside the building. So we get traffic from the Grove Park Inn. We get traffic from the trolley tours in Asheville. And people, we're one of the things that comes up when you start looking on TripAdvisor and things in Asheville that are fun and interesting to do. We come up with really good reviews and it's free. You know, that's one of the things that people love about it is that they can bring their families and look at the cars and look through the museums and discover some of the arts and crafts wonders of Asheville for free. And we have free parking and that's attractive to people as well. But the artists at Grovewood Village are just incredible. I've been lucky enough to become friends with several of these talented people and I'm just amazed 
a lot of times of their background and what they've gone through to become artists and the sacrifices that they've made to do what they do. And as we were speaking before this the show, there's no shortage of very cool things that you can buy for your home in Asheville, whether it's glass or furniture or paintings or sculptures or whatever. Grovewood is just one of those very special places located in Nashville where there are some incredible artists doing doing some really great things. But we typically come out near the top of the list. Louise says Grovewood is her favorite, but we constantly are getting ranked, you know, top two or three places in Asheville for people to visit to buy beautiful handmade things in Asheville. I'm so glad you mentioned that it's free because what a gift that is. And, you know, we live in a world where it feels like everyone is trying to monetize everything these days. So it's wonderful to know that people can come and visit for free. Yes. They can go to Grovewood Village or Grovewood.com and they can explore our website. We want people to come and, and enjoy the history. And a lot of people, even though they, they come to the car museum, are really unaware that they're right next door to this fabulous resort hotel. And I said, yeah, well, you can just walk right across the street. And I can't tell you how many times I've had people come back to the car museum and thank me because they went over and had lunch at the Grove Park Inn and discovered this beautiful resort hotel. That's really one of the crown jewels of Asheville. When you think about Asheville, the Biltmore Estates on the south side of town, the Grove Park Inn's on the north side of town. And they're really the two Besides the hospital, the Grove Park Inn and the Biltmore Estate are the two drivers of our economy. The Grove Park Inn probably employs around 900 to 1,000 people and the Biltmore Estate around 2,000 people. So they do a lot of really good things for our local economy and, you know, give people good places to work as well. So for those artists that are lucky enough to have a studio there, I mean, what a coveted opportunity what is the process for selecting those artists? I mean, what an honor to have your studio there. I really don't know. I think our, our general manager and our gallery people handle that. Our buyer, Sherry uh, Hoffmeyer, is involved with that. But we have, at the moment, about 10 artists And none of those studios have recently opened up. The only studio that opened up in the last couple of years was turned into a yoga studio by one of our owners. Uh, Mr. Blomberg's oldest granddaughter, Lynn Patton, is into yoga in a big way. And she decided that she wanted a yoga studio there. And so we have a really cool yoga studio there. But other than that, since I've been there, which has been since 2014, so about seven going on eight years, none of those studios have opened up. And it's the kind of place where the artists that are there feel very comfortable. And unless something drastic happens in their life, they're not likely to leave. So there's very little turnover. Sure, sure. Well, Tom, I'll tell you what, You, my friend, are a a fountain of knowledge and information. No wonder you're the historian there and and the keeper of all this great history. Tom, how did you find yourself in Asheville? Tell me your story. Did you grow up there? Like, How lucky are you to be there? What was your journey like? I am very lucky, Scott. I was born in Asheville in 1958. I'll be 64 coming up on my next birthday. And I've lived almost all of my 64 years in Asheville. I went to public schools in Asheville, graduated at Asheville High in 1976, 
attended the University of Tennessee. And I, for most of the, uh, in the early 70s and early 80s, I worked as an assistant golf professional at the Grove Park Inn. I've been a lifelong golfer. And I have been one of those people who was lucky enough to kind of watch Asheville and the Grove Park Inn and the Biltmore Estate transform. I think I made my first trip to the Biltmore Estate when I was in about the fourth or fifth grade in the, about 1968. And I think the tickets back then were either two or three dollars. So things have definitely changed. <laughs> but, you know, that, that was, you know, I, I really, in the short time that I did move away from Asheville, my mother remarried in the in the early 70s and I moved to southern Indiana. I could not wait to get back to Asheville. It's one of those places, if you ever live here, when you leave, there is nothing more exhilarating than coming back from wherever you go than seeing these beautiful old mountains around you and feel like, oh, they're giving me a little hug and I'm so glad to be home. I worked as a driver and a sales rep for FedEx in the, in the 80s and 90s. I am married to a girl who I met at the Grove Park Inn in 1981. I was working in the golf shop, and she got a job as a lifeguard at the pool. And we started dating in the summer of 1981 and got married in the summer of 1982. And Dee Dee and I will be celebrating our 40th anniversary coming up this July. So the Grove Park Inn has been a very important part of my life since I was a teenager. And Dee Dee and I, Dee Dee and I go to the Grove Park Inn every year for our anniversary. So that's sort of my story. I was one of those lucky people who was born in Asheville and decided that why in the world would I ever want to leave here when everybody in the world's fallen all over themselves trying to get here? <laughs> so, <laughs> well, well, uh, Tom, I can relate a little bit because. While I've been to Asheville, I actually am from Indiana and I've had family in Southern Indiana. So I've been to Southern Indiana and Asheville is way better. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. I I can totally relate. No no disrespect to the Hoosier state, but I'm a a big Tar Heel. Yeah. Great, great, great people. But uh, (laughs) Asheville is much more beautiful. Indeed, indeed. And I can also relate because I you know, was lucky enough also to find a wife who could put up with me too. So congratulations on finding <laughs> finding a, your love, the love of your life that could put up with you. That's I've been fantastic. been a very lucky man. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, you know, Tom, you, you talked about Edith's Vanderbilt's commitment to young women and boys we're going back again because, you know, right now we're living in a time of heightened sensitivity around politics and social justice and race relations and all of these things. And of course, Edith Vanderbilt was committed to supporting these young children and what have you. You know, what about her support, her commitment to black artists who did so much work on the Biltmore estate? You know, can you talk a little bit about that and the founding of the YMI Cultural Center and unpack that a little bit for us? That's not something I'm really familiar with, but yeah, Mrs. Vanderbilt was was a very progressive woman who was one of the pioneers of a train of thought that was very inclusive in Asheville. And the YMI Cultural Center is one of those places that was able to bring young black artists into the picture. Mrs. Vanderbilt was, from all accounts, one of the, of the most very 
caring and loving and supportive women. And I think this was one of, one of the reasons that she was orphaned. She and her two sisters had grown up with their grandmother and traveled around the United States and around the world with their, with their grandmother. And she knew the importance of extended family. And I think that's, you know, of course, a big part of the black community and in every part of the world, not only here in Asheville, but she would definitely be one of the people that was responsible for not only bringing the arts movement to the arts in the upper upper echelon of people, but to also artists that were struggling and people who wanted to get into the arts and crafts world were inspired by things that Edith Vanderbilt had a hand in. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful to hear. You know, Tom, as we wrap up today, because you've been so incredibly generous with your time and your expertise, and I'm so grateful for it. You know, I want to be sure to give you the opportunity to wax poetic about something that you would like us to know, something maybe we didn't talk about, some question that I failed to ask. Leave us with some parting thoughts about what our listeners should know about Grovewood and Asheville and just anything that you want to share. Sure. Well, Asheville is, of course, a very popular tourist destination because, as I said before, the reason that Grove and Vanderbilt and all these other people started coming to Asheville, it was for the weather, the beautiful climate, the proximity to New York. A lot of these people were living in New York. They'd come through Asheville on their way to Palm Beach or wherever. So people still make that journey today, and Asheville is kind of one of those natural stop-off points But, you know, I guess one of the things that I'd really like to emphasize when we talk about the Vanderbilts and Edith Vanderbilt in particular and her nature for giving back to the community and philanthropic attitude, I want to talk a little about the Cecil family. Cornelia Vanderbilt's two sons, George and Bill Cecil, have been just an incredible part of the transformation of Asheville when Cornelia Vanderbilt married a gentleman named John Cecil from England in 1924, but she divorced him in 1934. And she moved away to Europe, into Scotland and Ireland and England, and never moved back. Basically, John Cecil, spelled C-E-C-I-L, but pronounced Cecil, was left to Biltmore to fend for himself. And her two sons, Cornelia's two sons, George and Bill Cecil, had dual citizenship, and they spent a good bit of their time in Scotland and Ireland with their mother and a good bit of time in private school in Switzerland, but they also had American citizenship, so they were both born at the Biltmore House. And those two brothers, after their mother passed, had inherited the Biltmore House. Well, their mother had not passed, but under the terms of a trust— They inherited the Biltmore Estate and about 8,000 acres of property. And it was with their vision that the Biltmore Estate became this incredible entity that it is today. The two brothers decided to part ways and form two separate businesses in the 1970s, one called the Biltmore Company, which was run by the younger brother, Bill, and one called Biltmore Farms, which was run by the older brother, George. George Cecil decided that he didn't want to inherit the house. He took a bigger portion of the property, and his family today 
owns a company called Biltmore Farms, which does real estate developments where Louise lives in a place called Biltmore Lake and Biltmore Farms. And they're developers of hotels and commercial real estate. And Bill, the younger brother, is the guy who, quote, got stuck with the house and he turned it into the most visited tourist attraction in North Carolina. So turning something that was basically a white elephant that was a money-losing operation in the 1960s into something that generates hundreds of millions of dollars today and is the biggest driver of our economy is something that I think really should be noted. And George and Bill Cecil are really the two gentlemen that made that happen. George Cecil, the older brother, just died about a year ago in October of last year. He was 95. Bill, the younger brother, died a few years earlier in his late 80s. But their children and grandchildren and now great-grandchildren are all very much involved in the two businesses, Biltmore Farms and Biltmore Company. And they have very much carried on the tradition of providing employment, entertainment, and a lot of just really cool things for the people of Asheville. And that's the one thing that I would like to be noted is that those two brothers, George and Bill Cecil, are really, really responsible for a lot of the good things that have happened here in Asheville and at Biltmore over the last several decades. Sure. Well, thank you for that, Tom. That's an important addition to this incredible history. Tom, where can people find you, your organization, Grovewood Village? If they were to Google or go online, what's your website? Where can they find you on the internet? Grovewood Village or Grovewood.com. And they could reach me if they'd like uh, Tom at Grovewood. Fantastic. Tom Anders, I am so grateful for your generosity of time and expertise today. Thank you for helping us understand how Asheville has become Artsville. And thank you for being a guest. And please promise us that you'll come back someday. Scott, it's been my pleasure and it's been a lot of fun. And I would be more than happy to be with you again sometime. We'll look forward to it, Tom. Thank you. Hope your guests will come visit us in Asheville. Take care. We'll see them there. Exactly. Thanks for listening to the Artsville podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share it with your friends on social. Also, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any new episodes. The Artsville podcast is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts. Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville. Hartsville, feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah, Hartsville from Asheville.